Hey, good morning, everybody. If you are online, you will not know any difference. If you are, however, in person at Central Campus, you will notice a huge difference because we've gone all video venue this morning. And the reason we're doing that is because I have COVID. I have had really super light symptoms, but tested positive midweek. And so here we are video venue instead of being in person, I'm gonna live or all good. And then the last thing that I wanna say before we get going this morning is I wanna do a shout out to Gordon Cochran who celebrated his 94th birthday this last week, which I think makes Gordon the most senior member of our church, which I know he will enjoy. Joanne would want you to know she is much younger and now maybe Gordon will get a little of the respect he's been looking for. Anyway, happy birthday, Gordon. Uh, Margaret Thatcher, the former prime minister of Great Britain said, being powerful is like being a lady. If you have to tell people you are, you aren't. In other words, it tells us a lot about human nature, how we use power. Some people have to make a display of it so that people know that they've got power. We see that with demanding customers, creating a scene, or with a mean box flexing. Paul has another view of power. In Philippians chapter two, he writes, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by being obedient to death, even death on a cross. And Jesus himself says, no one takes my life from me but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and the authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. So Jesus has all this power and he, he exerts it in a very different way than what people are used to because he takes his power and he lays it aside in order to serve and to love. And that's unprecedented. It's a very unique thing to do with power. And since those of us who follow Jesus use him as our model, then we need to ask, how do we use the power that we have? And that's really the question of the day, or maybe the question of our lives. So we're gonna be in Ephesians chapter five today, some of the most controversial verses in the entire book and New Testament, beginning at verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ in the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself and the wife must respect her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with the promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. 
Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one of you for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Before we go further with this, I need to say there is a fried ear in Europe. I was typing out this sermon, and I had my head down, I was typing away, and I looked up and autocorrect had created this sentence, there is a fried ear in Europe. I have no idea what it means, and I didn't know what to do with it, so I threw it out there on social media, and the general consensus was just say it and move on. So there you go, there's a fried ear in Europe. I don't know how that ties in, but I set it out there anyway. So back to what I know. Ephesians is about the transformed community. People who've had an encounter with the grace and mercy and love of God through Jesus Christ. Grace that we didn't deserve, love that goes to the nth degree and covers all of our mistakes and restores us to relationships. And this transformed community reflects the character of God. And it reflects the kingdom of God because that's what we're living into. And we've been talking about how each community of Jesus is a beachhead in a war. Not a war to win an empire, but a war to defeat the power of evil. One, not by ever larger and fearsome weapons, but by living the way of the cross. That's what we are learning to do. And Ephesians bounces back and forth between the spiritual and the physical, between the macro and the micro, the individual and the corporate. And this is one of the reasons why it's so great to look at an entire book of the Bible throughout the summer, because now we can see these passages in context. If you've heard them preached on before, if you've studied them, they were probably taken out of the context of the entire book. But we can't take the teaching out of its context. And now we can see how these verses, which are very difficult, relate to everything else that Paul has been talking about. So how do we reflect the priorities and the character of God in our relationship? Well, this comes about, Paul's writing, because of some unique contextual challenges that the early church is facing. The government doesn't like Christians. Not because of who they worshiped. Rome couldn't care less who they worshiped. What Rome cares about is who they obey. Rome wants them to obey Caesar, and Christians want to obey Jesus. And because they're obeying Jesus instead of Caesar, the society and the government is worried about them having a negative effect. They don't want the order of things upset. Well, what order? Well, Caesar at the top, and then the wealthy and the powerful and the nobles, and all the way down to the women, the children, and the slaves. Or the haves and the have-nots, the highborns and the lowborns. There's lots of ways to look at it, but mostly they're concerned with conserving the status quo. And Christians were seen as a threat to the status quo and the basic building blocks of society because they were different. They had these clandestine gatherings where it was rumored that they drank human blood and ate human flesh. I mean, you know where that comes from, but you know how rumors get started too. And then there was perhaps the biggest problem with Christians, and that was that wives, women, and slaves were coming to Christ. Why? Well, 
it was good news for people who were living in oppression. And so those people were coming to know Jesus. The problem with women and slaves coming to know Jesus is that in that society, it was assumed that everyone in the household would accept the religion of the man. Women and slaves making their own choices, that is not the done thing. And that's the problem. So in order to fulfill the mission to tell people the good news of Jesus, Christians needed to show that they didn't threaten decency and order. It's like Paul is saying, don't give them anything to criticize. And this pops up in the New Testament in different places. Like in Titus 2.5, Paul says, so that no one will malign the word of God. Or in 1 Timothy 6, he says, so that God's name and our teaching may not be slandered. So Paul's really concerned with our behavior so that it doesn't reflect poorly on the gospel. He's saying to them, we want them to hear the gospel, so let's not do anything that would detract from that, which is really good advice, still applicable today. So to help Christians understand how they should behave and fit into society, Paul writes this passage and several others like it. This passage is, it's a, a technical term is, it's a household code. It's a very familiar format in that society with a few unique additions. Um, a household code, uh, code appears throughout the writing of most ancient philosophers, most ancient political people, because the, the basic understanding was if the fundamental building block of the society, the family, was organized and well-run, then the entire society would flourish. So Paul is talking about what, what it looks like to flourish as Christian people. So he talks about the household code. Code, husbands and wives, parents and uh, children, owners and slaves. And in doing this, in this passage, Paul addresses the power differential. And the power differential is something that we need to pay attention to in the text and in our lives. The power differential looks like this. Men generally have more power than women because generally men are stronger than women. Bosses have more power than the people that work for them. Therapists have more power than their clients. Professors have more power than grad students. Rich nations have more power than poorer nations, and you get the idea. And in the context of the way that things are broken, some people who have power exploit and abuse the vulnerable. And that's not the way it's supposed to be. That's not the kingdom way. And in fact, that really sums up the entire Old Testament. If you wanna save reading the Old Testament, I can give it to you. People who are in power shouldn't abuse their power. They should take care of the vulnerable. And this was one of the first hallmarks of Christianity. And if, we hadn't, if, the, if the followers of Jesus hadn't taken this seriously, we would, not, we would not have hospitals or orphanages or senior living facilities or educational systems because all of those were started by the church to care for the vulnerable in society, people having power using it to care for the vulnerable. Jesus sets this different standard because he has power and he lays it aside so that he can fix broken people and rescue the world from the power of evil and sin. And before we actually dive into the text, one other principle that I think will help us, and that is when you are interpreting a difficult passage of the Bible like this is, you always take the clear stuff first and help then the clear stuff will help you understand the difficult stuff. So here are two verses that I think are really clear that will help us understand some of the difficulties in this passage. The first is Galatians 3.28. 
There's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. That's pretty clear. And then the other clear part of this passage is in Ephesians 5.21, where Paul begins with, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So if we use those two clear passages, that will help us understand the difficult ones. So we're going to make two passes through the text. The first pass through is I want to just look at the husband passages. So verse 25 says, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Uh, verse 4 says, Fathers, do not exasperate your children. And verse 9 says, And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. That is how you would treat Jesus with respect. The power of fathers in the Greco-Roman world was nearly unlimited. And in this household code, Paul places some restrictions on the husbands, the fathers, and the masters. The culture may say that you have unlimited power to do what you want with your wife, with your children, with your slaves. That's your right. But what Paul is saying is that Jesus holds you responsible for giving up your rights and accepting responsibilities instead. So even the fact that Paul says, love your wife, is revolutionary. I mean, that just wasn't much thought of. If you happen to love your wife, that was probably a bonus. So Paul says, we're supposed to love our wives. And how should you love her? The way that Christ loves the church. How does Christ love the church? Or maybe another way of saying that is, what do you want from Jesus? What do you expect to get from Jesus as a follower. Jesus commits to you. Jesus says, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. Jesus promises to care for you. Jesus promises forgiveness of your sins. Jesus promises a sense of self-worth. That's the way that Jesus loves us, the way that Christ loves the church. And that's the type of love that husbands are supposed to give to their wives. But what about this whole headship thing? The husband is the head of the wife. Well, we can talk about headship for a very long time, but headship in this text has nothing to do with privilege. It's about the servant character of authority. The point of the headship analogy is the responsibility that husbands have to give themselves to their wives as Christ gave himself to the church. In other words, husbands are supposed to be givers, not takers. I chuckle every once in a while because I know a lot of older women, many of them are single, and every once in a while some guy asks them for a date or something like that. And almost universally they tell me, at this age, men are either looking for a nurse or a purse. And I find that pretty funny. But this is not what Paul says that we should be going for. We should be givers, not takers. And then Paul says, don't exasperate your children. I love that language because anyone who has ever had a father, anyone who has ever had a child knows about exasperation. We have all been there. So I love the, the poeticness of the language. But what I really want to point out that I think is worth noting is that Paul says, don't exasperate your children. What everybody in that society would have expected was for him to say, don't, don't exasperate your sons. He's including daughters. And that is so important because women don't matter. 
and daughters don't matter in this society. There's millions probably of instances of daughters just being left outside to die because their fathers didn't want them. So just by including daughters in this is a major step forward. Don't exasperate um, them. But he says, instead, bring them up in the training and the instruction of the Lord, which is, sounds a little bit funky, but I think what Paul is saying is engage with them. And if you're going to bring them up in the training, in the instruction of the Lord, where are they going to learn that from? Well, primarily, they're going to learn that from you. So engage with their children. Show them the Jesus way. Then masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Any discussion of slavery is going to be painful on so many levels. Slavery is slavery, even if there are nuances. I'm going to talk a little bit about this for a second, and then we're going to return to it later. Because I think what Paul is saying here is really revolutionary. And think about hearing this in this context. I mean, it's one thing to love your wife. It's another thing to care for your children. But to treat your slave with respect, to, to treat them with the same care and respect that you are receiving from Jesus, that's just unheard of. But that gets us back to the transformed community. Society might let you treat the members of your household worse than you treat your dog, but Jesus won't. And then the second pass through the text is that he goes back to address the women, the children, and the slaves individually. Why does this matter? Once again, I don't want to overuse the word, but it's revolutionary because nobody ever addressed those people because nobody cared. Paul's addressing the people who are on the short side, uh, short side of the power differential. I think the worst thing that you can do to someone is to ignore them as if they don't exist. This is Paul's way of saying, God sees you. You have worth. You have dignity, even if you don't have power. Even if you're abused, God has not forgotten you. God's justice and the community that he's creating is for everyone, not just the powerful. But historically, which verses in all this text have we paid the most attention to? Verse 22, wives, submit to your husbands. Verse 1, children, obey your parents. And verse 5, slaves, obey your masters. I'm not sure that's where the emphasis of the text falls, though. I think it's evidence that it's always easier to see how other people should behave rather than to look at our own behavior or thought patterns. And I think that we have a tendency to look for scriptures that prop up our own personal beliefs rather than holding our own lives up to the light of scripture and allowing the scripture to speak into our lives. So let me make a couple of points about Paul's point. Paul calls us to submit mutually to one another. And mutual submission is unique. Our society emphasizes equality. And equality is a great thing. We're all in favor of that. But mutual submission is a much stronger idea. With equality, you still have a battle. You still have a battle of rights. Is funding for women's sports the same level as for men's sports? Are people from different backgrounds be given the same opportunities? Equality can exist without love. It can just be a cold, hard calculation, mostly fought out in the courts. Equality will not create Christian community. 
Mutual submission, however, will. Because with mutual submission, we each give up our rights to support each other and to care for one another and to prefer the other one in love, even if it costs us something. Equality doesn't require love. Mutual submission is love in action. And in this, the biblical view of marriage is that the two partners are assumed to be one, each working for the benefit of the other, seeing that a success for one is a success for both, each one called to be a cheerleader for the other, wishing and praying and helping and empowering and equipping them to be the best that God has called them to be. Jesus' followers in marriage are supposed to give up the self-centered desire to be served and to promote instead the well-being of their spouse. It's a very different view of marriage. Now, boots on the ground, order your marriage how you want. Maybe in your marriage you have traditional roles or maybe you have non-traditional roles. Whatever works for you. I mean, divide up the cooking and the cleaning and the paying the bills, the taking the kids wherever they need to go. Divide that up however you want. It, it's not about who does what as much as it is about how you treat and care for one another. Then I want to deal with how come Paul didn't call for the complete abolishment of slavery? And how come Paul is not super clear about the place of women? Because he writes some fairly ambiguous things. In my mind, what Paul writes here is the beginning of writing a wrong. I think the gospel of Jesus enters into the context of the first century and begins to transform it. And I think Paul lays out a case for it. I think Paul names the way that things are and then points to the way that things should be and then shows us how to work towards that. Like, for instance, with the whole slavery issue, Paul holds Philemon's feet to the fire. I mean, read the book. Uh, Philemon has a slave, Onesimus, who runs away, and Philemon is a slave owner. He can do to Onesimus whatever he wants to. He has the right to do that. But Paul calls him to lay the right aside. In verse 15 of Philemon, he writes, Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He's very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. That's the transformation that occurs. That's what Paul wants to see. In Jesus, Onesimus is now a brother in the Lord. But over the years, when it comes to slavery, too many in the church, too many Christian people didn't do enough to right a horrific wrong, and they quoted the wrong verses instead of quoting the right ones. The second-class nature of women throughout the ages, too long that's been promoted by the church. How the church treats women, and particularly the abuse of women, is on display for the entire culture to see. And we need to be sure that we're treating women with dignity and respect, and that the church is a safe place for them. And I find it interesting that all of these things are still controversial at some level. Why? I think because of power, which is where we started. I think because of focusing on the wrong thing, 
which has been a problem as we've interpreted to the biblical text. But I think about one day, because I take this seriously, the way that I'm entrusted with others to lead this congregation, I think about standing one day in front of Jesus as the Lord of the church and him asking me about my stewardship of this. And if I stand up there and say, I didn't really pay much attention to that go into the whole world and preach the gospel and make disciples things, but by God, I kept women out of leadership. I mean, can you imagine the look on Jesus's face? I said earlier that the gospel entered the first century and transformed it. I think the gospel is entering and continues to enter the 21st century and transforms it, or it does potentially. We can lament what should have been done in the past that wasn't, and we should. It's lamentable. But we also have a responsibility to make sure that we, here and now, are living out the full demands of the gospel in the way that we deal with people. Maybe we need to ask ourselves the questions about, are we dehumanizing people to this very day? Whether people in service positions, or people who are different from us, or whatever you might come across. These are the issues that face us that come out of the text today. So let me ask you three questions. Number one, why do you think it's so hard for people to willingly give up power? Number two, in what ways can mutual submission be a joy in a relationship? And number three, how can you more accurately reflect kingdom values in relationships you have?